You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now present the Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi. everybody to the Health Hub and thank you for joining us this week. I'm Kathy Biasa, your host, and this is our producer, Alex Diaz. Good morning, Alex. Good morning, Kathy. How are you doing? I'm well. How are you doing? Keeping well, thank you. Awesome. Weather's finally changed, I think. Last uh, week I drove here in a snowstorm and uh, yesterday I was in a shorts or in shorts and t-shirt. So I think I think we finally hit spring. Yeah, it's, it's been a crazy, crazy period of weather that's been really inconsistent, but I'm glad that it's springtime now. Yeah, I'm looking forward to the next two weeks. We've got two of our teams in the playoffs, the Raptors and the Leafs. The Jays have had a bit of a a bad start, but you know what? That can be put on the back burner until we get through our playoffs. So it's going to be it's going to be a fun couple of weeks at the at the very least. Today's show is being recorded, but we still love your feedback and we do our very best to reply to all of the questions and comments that are sent our way. So uh, you can email us at thh at radiomaria.ca. You can tweet at us at radiomariacan, or you can tweet me personally at Kathy underscore Biasse. And to that end, before we jump into the show today, I just wanted to address a couple of questions. One of them was uh, the cost for being involved in virtual reality in the second life. Uh, there is no cost if you want to just go and troll the site. You can create your avatar and jump on and and just explore the areas in there. Where a cost does become involved is if you want to create your own room. So if if you go on and you see that there's there's something or you don't see something that you'd like to, to have, you can certainly create your own room. And uh, Dave Williams, our guest, said that there is a minimal cost. This leads us to the second question. He ha- is the um, operator, I guess the creator of the Cancer Clubhouse. And a few people asked if virtual reality, what we were speaking of, the second life was just a cancer source. And no, it's not. His particular house is is a cancer survivor clubhouse. But there are many, many different areas from social to gaming, I even I think, uh, and in the health world. So so those are the two questions that did reoccur. So no, you don't have to pay. And no, it's not specifically for um, the cancer patients. So on to today's show. We're now in full throttle. Uh, spring is here, so full throttle spring. And with April showers and May flowers also comes hay fever season. So I thought it would be a great opportunity to talk about the subjects of allergies. Alex, do you have any allergies? I do have uh, a lot of, of food allergies, but not so much with the seasons. Uh, my food allergies are dairy. Mm-hmm. And so I, I can't I can't have any cheese even nuts I'm allergic to as well. So, you know, growing up, I was eating a lot of soya products and I still drink to this day soya milk because I can't tolerate the cow's milk. But I've been able to grow out of some of those allergies, which I'm sure our guest today will touch on a little bit. 
we will be touching on we'll be touching on all sorts of of allergies from seasonal allergies to food allergies and intolerances and we're really going to see the role that our gut plays uh within allergies um gut health and more specifically the microbiome is trending as a major area of study in all aspects of healthcare the microbiome, in its most simplistic of definitions, is the collection of microbes that live both on and inside our body, and they help us perform many life-sustaining functions. Interestingly enough, I just read a study yesterday out of the University of Alberta, and it found that children who are exposed to dogs and cats early in life, uh, before birth actually, and up to about three months of age, had lower risks of allergies and obesity Now, they can't make a direct line, but the implication is that exposing uh, our bodies to more and more bacteria and getting our bodies sort of acclimated to different situations really does help with our health. And it's a fascinating topic and one that I am particularly interested in in my practice. Uh, And these days, the studies are just coming every day on different aspects of gut health. And we're just beginning to understand the implication of a healthy gut versus an unhealthy gut to our overall well-being. When we return, we will be speaking with Lorene Sorrow. Lorene is an expert in the area of gut health, and she's going to help us to understand our gut and the role that it plays in allergies.
You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program, The Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to The Health Hub on Radio Maria Canada. As mentioned, today's show is being recorded, but you can reach us out to us in many ways with thoughts, questions, reflections on the show by tweeting at Radio Maria Canada. You can tweet me personally at Kathy underscore Biasse or emailing us at the Health Hub, THH at Radio Maria Canada. I'll make that a little clearer for you. It's THH at Radio Maria Canada. We're also on Facebook, so you can look up the address, the Health Hub Radio Maria. So plenty of ways to ask your questions to Lorene if uh, you, ha- you want to continue further with learning this subject matter, or you can, I will give you her, her information if you want to contact her uh, at the end of the show or, or later on. So let's get into it now. My guest today is Lorene Sorrell. Lorene is an RHN, has been a food professional for over 25 years and a nutrition professional for 17 years. As a food professional owning her own bakery, Lorene spent years working with organic farmers to help start a farmer's market in Toronto and organizing Feast of Fields, an event to promote organic farmers and raise money and awareness for environmental causes. A health crisis led Lorene to study nutrition and to become a nutrition professional. Currently, Lorene is a teacher at the Canadian School of Natural Nutrition and is an active member of CANPRO, an association for nutrition professionals. She is the author of A Pastry Queen Goes Green, a baking book where Lorene has put everything, and she knows a lot, man. She's put everything into what she knows of baking into one spot with a nutritional spin. She is also founder of the Healthy Gut Program and the Healthy Hormone Program for practitioners and the Simply Fermenting, sorry, Lorraine, the Simply Fermentation Workshop, online workshop for consumers. She currently combines her love of food and her nutrition knowledge to promote sustainable methods for growing and preparing foods. As a writer and speaker, Lorraine loves to communicate through her website, programs and events, the information that consumers and practitioners need to help them get more from their food and enjoy their life. So welcome, Lorene. Thank you so much for being with us. I truly appreciate you being here. And on a personal note to everyone, Lorene is, in fact, my mentor. I have her programs. Um, They are chock full of such wonderful knowledge. And often um, I go to sleep with Lorene in my ear because I keep re-listening to her programs. Every time I hear something, it's, you know, I feel like I've learned something new. So welcome to the show, Lorene. Thank you very much, Kathy. I'm very happy to be here. And that was a lovely introduction. Thank you. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure. So, Lorene, before we get into the topic of the day, which is allergies, I would really like to give our listeners an appreciation of gut health, the gut microbiome, all these things that are right in your wheelhouse. It's it's a topic that I, I, I delve in all the time, and I think it's just so fundamental for everybody to understand, you know, the rudimentaries of what the gut is, why gut health is important. So perhaps you can, you know, jump into that aspect. Let us know what gut health is. Maybe give us a broad interpretation of the microbiome and, and let us get started at that point. Okay, well, when we talk about gut health, we're talking about how our small and large intestines 
function. A lot of people think the gut is the stomach, but the gut actually is below the stomach where your small intestines and large intestines. And inside there are billions and billions of bacteria. And I know a lot of people think bacteria is something to be afraid of, but in actuality, we function due to good bacteria, which is very beneficial for us. When they talk about the microbiome, that's essentially what they're talking about is the environment that this uh, gut bacteria lives in. And we actually have several microbiomes uh, in our body. We have obviously the one in our gut and we have the one that's on our skin and we have one in our nose. And, you know, everywhere we have an opening to the world at large, we have gut bacteria or sorry, excuse me, bacteria. And most of it is beneficial and it protects us. So when we talk about gut health, we talk about how this area in our gut functions and we're talking when we want to have a healthy gut, we're talking about having sufficient good gut bacteria in order to function properly. So when you say good gut bacteria, I'm assuming that there's bad gut bacteria as well? Oh, yes. So the ones that that people are actually afraid of live naturally in us anyway. Um, so the, it's always about balance. And so the good gut bacteria can keep the bad bacteria at, at bay. It, it sort of keeps it in check. And they actually have this, you know, copacetic relationship where they all get along and play nice in the playground because the good gut bacteria is in charge. And you should have about 85% of the bacteria in your gut or could be on your skin or wherever these, you know, beneficial bacteria is, 85% of it should be good gut bacteria in a healthy gut. So that's what we mean by a healthy gut. You have this diverse community of bacteria, most of which is beneficial, and you have thousands of strains of beneficial bacteria, so many that they don't even know what they all are yet or what they do yet. It's an ever-evolving study. So what I want to know is, are we born with this gut bacteria? Can I take a probiotic and, and, and change the gut? But if it's as easy as doing that and just getting the right strains in, wouldn't it be easy to, to manipulate the, our health in a direction that we want to be in? Um, it's not quite that simple because when you, first of all, you have thousands of strains. And when you take a probiotic, you're not taking the, the strains that are in you. You're taking... Sorry, my cats are having a fight right now. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, They're they're not taking the strains that are in you. You're taking just strains. And these strains don't stay. They leave. They will help you while they're there. They will do many of the same functions that your own gut bacteria would do. And then they move out. And so they're, they're very, very helpful, but they're not actually your strains. And you are... Well, they, they used to think you were born, we were born sterile, but now they know that we actually receive some gut bacteria from our mother uh, in the womb. So we actually come out with some already, but then the big challenge is building up gut bacteria within the first two years of life. So depending on how well you did that, and, and it's not just about quantity, it's about diversity of strains, the better you are starting off life, the more you know, quantity of strains and quality of strains you have. So it's not as simple as taking a probiotics. But that being said, probiotics can be very, very helpful for specific health issues. 
depending on what strains you take and what product you take. And it's going to be very complex in the, right now because they just don't know enough. Mm-hmm. But uh, they are they are helpful. So I was I, I tell everybody that I read so much about the gut bacteria, but I, I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm an amateur at it. I did read a study a while back talking about uh, method of delivery. My son was born um, by a C-section. One of my children was born by a C-section. And he has an anaphylactic peanut allergy. And after reading this study, I, I basically thought that that was my fault. So now you're saying that it's not just in your delivery method, you can actually build it up as we're growing? Absolutely, because they've done studies where they take babies who have been both either not breastfed or, or delivered cesarean or both and compare them to bottle-fed babies and vaginally delivered babies. And what they've done is feed the, the babies who are uh, cesarean-born and or uh, not breastfed, what they call a prebiotic fiber. Uh, GOS is one and FOS is the other. And so these are things that we typically get in food, but they add this to the baby's formula and the babies catch up pretty quickly to the bottle f- or the breastfed and uh, vaginally delivered babies. So yes, there are many things that can be done. Um, and even without an intervention, um, babies often catch up. They might not have quite as much, but it's not, it's not the smoking gun that people thought it was. There has to be some other issues at play that will cause a child to have um, an anaphylactic peanut allergy or whatever allergy it is um, beyond just you know being delivered cesarean and not being uh, breastfed. So it's not as simple as, you know, you know, you didn't deliver it the normal way. Therefore, that's the reason. That's it's not like that at all. Well, that's good to hear. I've had a, a lot of guilt over that one. Um, now, so then, is is your gut microbiome like your your microbiome in general? Is it like a fingerprint? It does it. You know, once it's established, can it be altered? Do you want to change it? Um, I know. You know, in practice, what I'm seeing, and it's it's just absolutely a subjective look, is that. People moving from one country to another country, I, I'm seeing a lot of people that, you know, have immigrated to Canada from, from abroad, they're having issues with their gut. And, you know, I, I've, I've made, I've, I've, I always ask questions about what they ate and what their background is. And I, I'm wondering, you know, just I just would like your thought on this because it's something that's popped up in my head a lot of times is that, you know, if you're if you're brought up at the age of, you know, in a certain country with a certain type of food and then moved, how would that affect your gut microbiome? Well, that's a very interesting question, because what we know about traditional diets in other countries around the world is they tend to be very good for the gut. So the gut to maintain your good bacteria requires a variety of foods, whole foods, a lot of foods that actually feed the gut bacteria. And these tend to be prevalent in traditional diets. So when a lot of people move from wherever they are, where they tended to be eating more whole food and they come to North America where they don't eat quite as well as they did, plus, of course, stress playing a role coming to a new country. They are also exposed to different uh, bugs and bacteria and viruses that they, you know, their system has to adjust to. So you put all that together, they do tend to suffer from some gut health problems uh, because they, you know, aren't following sort of what has worked for them in the past. 
So obviously you think diet plays a key role in, in a good microbiome and a good healthy gut. It does. And there's some really good studies now where they've done tests where they take somebody with a good microbiome and feed them junk food for three weeks and then see uh, what has happened both to the quantity of their good gut bacteria and the diversity of their good gut bacteria. And it goes down significantly like upwards of 20, 30, even 40% in just a few weeks. And then they've also done studies where they look at people's microbiome and then they start feeding them good food and see how that makes a difference and it it starts to go up. The only issue they have right now is if you didn't have good diversity developed when you were young, uh, it's hard to have good diversity as an adult no matter what you eat. Um, which means you might be more dependent on something like probiotics and fermented foods and things like that to, to actually help you with more bacteria that'll, it's not going to stay in you, as I mentioned, but it'll at least help you while it's there. Well, you mentioned fermented foods. What is that? So that's sauerkraut, yogurt, my very favorite, kefir. Uh, if it's kefir made from kefir grains, it has 32 strains of good bacteria and yeast, fabulous for the gut. Uh, kimchi, kombucha, wine, unpasteurized beer. Um, there's all kinds of wonderful things that um, are fermented. And essentially, it's a preservation technique for food that's, you know, thousands of years old. Uh, but it also, it is being, the food is being preserved by good bacteria. And that good bacteria, the strains are somewhat similar to the ones we have in us. And therefore, they're very helpful for us from a health perspective. So are they giving us good bacteria or is this one of the foods that are feeding our good bacteria? How does the, how does the fermentation help us when we're eating? Two, twofold. Um, the one, it's giving us good bacteria for sure, because that's part of the preservation technique. If the good bacteria wasn't in a fermented food, then it wouldn't be preserved. It would just you know, be moldy and smelly and whatever. Uh, but the other thing is a lot of these foods have prebiotics in them anyway. Like if we look at sauerkraut, cabbage is a natural prebiotic that feeds our own good gut bacteria. So when you eat sauerkraut, not only do you get the beneficial bacteria, but you also get some prebiotic food to help feed the good bacteria that is native to you. Interesting. So do you think that the way we eat, is it is it the food that is at issue when we're talking? You know, we've got health issues that, that seem to be more and more aggressive as time goes on. Is it the gut that you believe is the root of, of our issues? Well, what we now know is that you can link just about every health condition there is to uh, insufficient gut bacteria. So it doesn't matter if we're talking about osteoporosis or cancer or heart disease or diabetes or depression, um, you know, you name it, it's been linked to having gut health issues. So uh, this is separate from actually having intestinal issues, which of course are gut health issues. Uh, So yes, it is a major, major player. Uh, 95% of your gene expression. So you can have your genes, but how they express themselves determines how you function. And so 95% of your gene expression is controlled by your gut bacteria. So what you're saying is we're not, we're not a slave to our genes? Is that basically what you're saying? Yes, that's what I'm saying. So, you know, these people that are doing these gene analysis and so forth, and they're getting reports and maybe getting freaked out by what they're seeing, they're only seeing half the picture. I would say they're only seeing, like, not even 10% of the picture. Really? Yeah. Really? 
Have you, have, I mean, I, this is, they say this all the time, even before we knew about the gut and in its role, that just because you have a gene, a gene for something, it doesn't mean you're going to get it. And they say, they've always said that, that there's other factors at play that determine whether you get a specific type of illness. So that's why you'll have people who have heart disease in the family, but they never get heart disease because they had other factors at play that even though there might be some genetic component to it, it didn't affect them because they did um, environmental uh, things with the way they ate, exercise, maybe their guts were good, you know, et cetera, that they just never got the heart disease despite it being prevalent in their family. You know, I've always had, you know, I have people that most of the clients I have are, are, are ill, are chronically ill, and I've been asked questions about getting DNA testing and gene testing and so forth. And I do have a, an issue if I might say that with, you know, what do you do with this information? This is a little bit off of our topic, but I'm just thinking as you're talking, what do you do with this information? You get a report that says your genes are this or that, and, and you're, you're in line for this disease. I think the benefit of hearing somebody like you is that people will start to get an understanding that we are, we are a part, what we do, our lifestyle, so forth is a part of good health. And to that end, I, you know, I have people coming in saying, I want to be gluten free. I want to be dairy free. I want to remove all the grains in the diet. And, and what would you say to somebody, a client that came in to see you and say, you know, I've read that being gluten free is the way to go. This is what I need to do. I want to pull out all the grains. I hear they're bad for me. Are they bad for this person? Well, the grains are not bad for any person. Um, there may be a specific grain that somebody has an allergy or an intolerance to, and they may feel better if they don't consume it. And when you have a gut health issue, uh, one of the things that your gut bacteria does is deliver something called immune tolerance, which means that if you react to a specific food, you've lost tolerance to that food. So they may be, it may be helpful for a specific Brain, but to take them all out, they're one of the number one foods for your gut bacteria. So you're actually going to do yourself more long-term damage uh, by removing all the grains. And if you don't have a gluten issue, wheat is an amazing prebiotic food for gut bacteria. And there's a reason why it's been a staple in the diet. Same with potatoes, same with corn. Uh, these are an amazing foods for the gut. And so you don't really want to take them out if you don't have to. So it's, it's, a, it's always going to be a question of, you know, somebody's severely debilitated because their gut is so bad, they have lots of intolerances, um, then, you know, maybe they have to consider that in the short term. But in the long term, their goal should be to build up their gut bacteria so that they have no issues with food whatsoever. So this and, is and a long the, process. This is to build it, back it your gut bacteria is not like taking a, a sinus medication. Yeah, because we don't have the specific formula for each individual. We're all different. And so what they're learning right now is that certain health conditions are linked to certain strains of bad bacteria. And so even though you may have, you know, not enough good gut bacteria and you have too much bad, we don't know specifically what strains of bad that you have that are more prevalent. So, you know, E. coli could be linked to certain health conditions and salmonella could be linked to other conditions and campylobacter could be, and this is what they're finding is, so it's not just a matter of good versus bad. It's what, what good do you have and what bad do you have determines sort of what kind of illnesses you manifest. 
And so it's, it's very complex, but we do know, because, you know, I work with people like this all the time. I'm sure you've seen this as well, Kathy, that when people work on their gut over time, uh, things start working a lot better and they start feeling a lot better and a lot of foods that they couldn't digest before, they can digest now, no problem. And it's not about removing the food. It's about fixing the gut. So what are the, you know, if you had to do like a one, two, three step for repairing the gut, what would you say that would be? Um, Well, first, I want to look at the overall quality of the diet and make sure they're getting at least 80% of the diet containing foods that actually have um, health benefits. So it's not just prebiotic foods, but also lots of vitamins, minerals, antioxidants. These are all very good for the gut as well. Fiber, of course, is a major food for the gut. So things like that. And then I would want to add fermented foods because now we want to give the gut some help, right? Mm -hmm. And then this is a tricky part because if they have too much bad bacteria, then they need to do something. uh, We call them, you take an antimicrobial, which could be something like grapefruit seed extract or oil of oregano or something like that that inhibits bad bacteria but does not inhibit good bacteria. And that might require the, uh, you know, somebody working with a practitioner in order to do that. Because if they don't move out some of that bad bacteria, it's really hard for the good bacteria to, you know, sort of overwhelm it. It will over time, uh, but it's it's not as easy as if, if you did something that had more of an intervention element to it. So those would be the top three things I would recommend. There's other things that can be done depending on how damaged the person's gut lining is and, you know, what other conditions. It's, it's, it's very complicated, and that, that would also require a practitioner to be involved. But um, there's always something they can do. What are the signs, you know, other than being, uh, you know, acutely ill or chronically ill, how do you know or how do you get a read that you may be in line for some gut work? Uh, if you suffer from gas and bloating, if you have either loose stool or constipation, do you suffer from headaches? Um, do you find uh, that something happens in your intestinal system when you get stressed? Um, do you find uh, that you react to certain foods? Do you Are you overly tired? Are you stiff? Are you achy? Um, there's all kinds of you know, symptoms that don't belong to a diagnosed condition per se that could indicate that you have a gut health issue. And the number one thing they should look at is what is the quality of their diet? Mm -hmm. If they aren't eating very well, they're not feeding their gut and they would do have some type of gut health issue. Here's what I see a lot in practice that people that seem to have gut health issues, bloating, whatever, are taking um, antacids, proton pump inhibitors. Uh, I know that that must wreak havoc some way, shape, or form on the gut. Well, it does and it doesn't. Um, If you are trying to inhibit uh, bacteria that's coming in from the outside world that is not good for you, then not having sufficient stomach acid is a problem. Um, But if you have sufficient gut bacteria and you take an acid-blocking drug, it's going to impair your digestion to a degree, but it's not necessarily going to alter the gut bacteria in your intestines. Mm-hmm. Okay, but probably so- if, if you already, if, it's complicated because a lot of times that reflux is a sign that you have poor gut digestion capabilities. Everybody thinks it's the stomach, but actually it can originate lower down. And so they might already have the gut bacteria problem. Hmm. 
So it's not a one, two, three, here we go, we're going to fix this. It's a, it's a work in progress constantly. And, I, and it's a work in progress throughout life, I imagine. The, the ebbs and flows and environmental toxins and that is always wreaking havoc on us. So we're bumping up against time, Lorene. So when we come back after our break, we are going to get into the topic of allergies and how our gut health affects allergies and food intolerances. So we'll be back in a minute.
Welcome back, everybody, to the Health Hub on Radio Maria Canada. Again, this show is being pre-recorded, but reach out to us on Twitter at Kathy underscore Biasse, at Radio Maria Can, or feel free to email us at thh at radiomaria.ca. So now we are going to get on to the topic of allergies. And Lorene, I'd like you to explain to everybody the difference between an allergy and an intolerance. Okay, so the simplest definition is that with an allergy, your immune system has formed antibodies to a substance. It could be, you know, if you have a pollen allergy to pollen, if, or if you have a food allergy, it could to celery or peanuts or something like that. And, and so somehow uh, this is occurring in the bloodstream because that is where antibodies are formed. Um, and so it's, it's a more serious and permanent issue, whereas an intolerance, and it's a, intolerance is a loosely used word. Um, some people will even call antibodies known as IgG intolerances. That's a bit not the way to go, but look, we'll just leave that out of the topic right now. Um, but most intolerances are temporary and they refer to digestive issues that are happening in the uh, digestive and intestinal system and therefore they are more likely to go away with some good gut health management and some good digestion management um, than say an allergy which tends to have more permanency. That being said, we know that children who uh, have nut allergies, uh, 25% of them outgrow them. So we know there's a pathway even to get rid of allergy. We just don't know the specifics. So an allergy is more permanent. And okay. Um, now, physiologically, what is happening to the gut when there is a food intolerance? Um, it's not so much what's happening to the gut, it's what's happening in the gut. So for example, 
when every substance that you are exposed to, you're supposed to have something called immune tolerance to it if it's not actually harmful to you. So the way your immune system works is that it receives signals from your gut bacteria to tell it to leave alone substances. So this could, again, be airborne things. This could be food. Um, it could be your own body tissue. So these all have immune tolerance. And um, they're given the immune tolerance by gut bacteria. So when someone reacts to a food, the gut bacteria is not telling the immune system to leave this alone. And is that so due the, to an imbalance? Yes. So, and again, specifics, is, this is why it's complicated. Specific strains are involved with tolerance and other strains of good bacteria or not. So you could have lots of good bacteria, just not enough of the ones that deliver tolerance. Um, and that's why you might react to a specific food. So gut now, bacteria is obviously related to an autoimmune disease then. Absolutely. And uh, there's a direct pathway. It It's very complicated because um, you can have antibodies to a substance, but if you have something called um, T regulatory cells, T regulatory cells actually make you non-reactive. And if you have sufficient T regulatory cells, it doesn't matter if you have antibodies, you're not going to react. But if you have insufficient T regulatory cells, this is when you start to react. And so the gut bacteria is essentially uh, promoting T regulatory cells. And as long as you have sufficient, you're not going to be reactive. And it's very complex because we can't say why some person has a, you know, a reaction to a peanut and another person has a reaction to a kiwi fruit. Um, it's, it's very complicated. But in, in, a, in a you know, simple way to put it, they're missing immune, immune tolerance to whatever they're reacting to. Okay, so one area that we didn't touch in before the break, and I think we it's important now because you mentioned uh, gut bacteria and T regulatory cells. What are other functions of gut bacteria? Well, you name it. Um, they, <laughs> first of all, help you digest. They help you poop. They help you um, control inflammation in the body. So remember that immune reactions also produce inflammation and make you you know, feel poorly and achy and stiff and swollen and, you know, inflammation can has a good purpose when you're trying to heal, but when you're not necessarily, you know, fighting a virus or something like that, you don't really want to be inflamed. Uh, they help stabilize blood sugar. They help regulate blood pressure. They help regulate cholesterol. They help um, the immune system fight for you. Uh, they help with mood and they help with stress and they help with brain function and nervous system function. Uh, they help with joint health and bone health. Uh, there's so many functions for gut bacteria. It's not funny. And they, they help you with weight. So they've now found that certain strains of bacteria, and this is good, good bacteria strains, promote weight gain and other strains promote weight loss. Um, like so this just, just adds a whole other level to people trying to, to lose weight now. You've just really well, thrown people off now. <laughs> well, actually, there was a segment on Dr. Suzuki's Nature of Things where he talked about uh, how they're looking at why some people just can't lose weight no matter how hard they try. And they're looking at their gut as the reason. 
Okay, so it's not hormones. That's, you know, I was with a group last night. We're at a book club meeting and one lady said, you know, I exercise, I eat right and I can't lose. She says, I'm at the, the, my highest weight I've ever been. And from across the room, it's your hormones. So it's not that easy. Well, and again, your gut bacteria affects your hormones and in particularly your thyroid hormones. And if you have hypothyroidism, you're not losing weight no matter how hard you try. Um, that's who, who that person is. She's, but but it, that can be regulated by her gut. Interesting. So, so why do you think needs- allergies are on the rise then? Allergies auto, why, on the rise because we're not eating well? Is that it? I think it's because we, A, take too many antibiotics. Mm. B, uh, we're not feeding our gut. So you can take an antibiotic, um, and other countries do, but they eat really well so that antibiotic doesn't have the effect on their gut bacteria that they seem to have on North American gut bacteria. So we, we also, we're too clean, so we don't have enough. Our gut bacteria thrives when it has to deal with other bacterias. So if we're not exposed to a lot of other bacterias, I always cringe when I go into Longos and see people squirting their hands with that sanitizer before mm-hmm. they touch the shopping cart. The best thing they could do is to touch the shopping cart and get exposed to somebody else's bacteria and, and germs. It's the best thing you can do for your health. And yet here we are, we're not, we're doing that. So it's how we eat. It's, you know, what kind of drugs do we take? And, uh, you know, what kind of germs are we exposed to? All contribute to whether you have a healthy microbiome or not. Interesting. So talking about seasonal allergies, because we are coming up to it, how would you equate gut health with seasonal allergies? Do you have tips for anybody? You know, I know it's not a it's not a quick process. So how would you say to somebody working at a gut health angle that this is how you should prepare for allergy season or this is how you should try and and combat certain things that bother you, a cat allergy? Is there is there a, a plan that people can put into place to start working on to try and minimize? I mean, I know that that's what I've been doing. I've been trying to minimize. I have I have hay fever and I'm allergic to cats and I, I just actually avoid cats. But um, the hay fever, I do try and, and implement different things. But what would you say from a gut health point of view is the way to go to prepare yourself for the upcoming seasonal allergy season? Well... It, it, it it's funny that seasonal allergies or airborne allergies are the easiest to get rid of for whatever reason. Uh, oh. Probably because the exposure is not as acute as when you have a food allergy. So I would start with simple uh, gut health strategies. Um, I would work on getting more probiotics and fermented foods into the diet. I would, you know, be eating more foods that are good for the gut bacteria and then what I mentioned before about some type of antimicrobial at some point may be needed. And that usually will take care of people's airborne allergens pretty nicely depending on how many they have and, you know, other factors. So um, that's what I would do is really just work on the gut. Um, it's complicated how the gut affects things like the lungs and other parts of the body, but it, it does. And so you start, that's the, you know, the area of, originating, you know, originality for, uh, you know, everything that happens in the body. So if you work on that first, uh, but they can also take things like quercetin and some other, um, they're they're known as anti-inflammatory supplements uh, that are natural, but they also help reduce the sort of inflammatory response in the body, which 
when you have the allergy, that's what you're having is an inflammatory response. Mm-hmm. It, the, the, the substance really isn't bad for you. So you need to quell the inflammation. And so there's lots of uh, natural things that could be taken that are anti-inflammatories that can be very helpful. And these, tend, these also tend to be good for the gut as well. Yeah, yeah. I, I am trying to do that more. Um, we try in our household to work on gut health by what we eat and so forth. And it is, it's not just a one, two, three fix. It's something that you have to do for, you know, forever. It's, it's a constant back and forth. And, you know, with the stress coming into our lives and that disrupting our health, it's, it really is something that you have to pay really good attention to. And as the studies are finding and fessing out more and more how important gut health is, it's important that people become aware of it in all aspects of their health. And everybody, we're just touching on Lorene's knowledge of this. So I, I hope to have her back in other spheres to explain correlations between gut health and other areas of health. But right now we've pushed against our time limit. So I wanted to give you Lorene's email or not email, sorry, her website that you can uh, you can contact her through and, and really, really get into her head about the, the gut and other things that she's so, so well versed in. So her website is www thedigestersdilemma.com and if if you can't reach her that way or you're having difficulty again tweet at us email us and we will definitely help you and point you in the right direction so that's a wrap up for today and instead of me giving you the health tip of the day I'm going to bounce this back to Lorene and she is going to end off with our health tip of the day well, I would say the number one health tip would be eat fermented foods. And if you're going to pick one over any of the other fermented foods, have kefir. Kefir made from kefir grains. Fabulous food. Okay. And we can buy that? We don't have to make that? You do not have to make that. Okay. You can buy it from uh, Liberté. Awesome. Okay, people, that's where you start with your gut health. Thank you so much, Lorene, for joining us. And have a good day, everybody. We'll see you next week on The Health Hub. have been listening to The Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi. Here 